I could crush your puny head in my hands. Get back to the you podcast. So and so. Get back to the podcast, you little <laughs> stupid man. Put the cookie down now. Welcome to the RPGBot.podcast. This is Bonton Roulette. I'm Randall James. With me is Tyler Kamstra. I have no idea what just happened. Hi, everybody. And Ash Eli. What, is it what did you just say? What? Let the good times is roll. It, is it? It's let the good times roll. Is it Fat it Tuesday? Is. It is. Miss Fat Tuesday? It is. It is Fat Tuesday. <laughs> All right. Bonton Roulette. Yes. <laughs> Uh, All right, uh, hello, folks listening Louisiana. at home. We're... Happy Mardi Gras. <laughs> and we hope uh, we hope you're well fed <laughs> and hardly conscious. Tyler, what's happening? Uh, uh oh yeah, Mardi tomorrow yes. tomorrow is uh guys, you know what tomorrow is? Tomorrow is Ash Wednesday. That means everyone on the internet is compelled to say nice things about our podcast co-host Ash. I didn't make up the rules. Yes. That is how it goes. I will take only nice things from now on. It just clicked. It just okay. It just clicked. Like you said that, and you, you just <laughs> no, got really it. just got you it. Just I, got I do it? not associate. Oh my uh, god, Ash the human being with you know Bernie bits Wednesday the substance. Yeah, oh, or Wednesday. I, I tend to associate him with Tuesdays. Actually, you know when we record the podcast. <laughs> I was wondering why that didn't land. I was uh, uh, Damon pointed it out, and then I was just like, oh yeah. I'm going to milk this for all it's worth and then just blank faces. (laughs) You guys made a bunch of, you guys made a bunch of rune jokes and just thought you were so funny. I got it. But I make the one Ash Wednesday thing and it's just, (laughs) no, I got it. I I played along with the bit. We did a bit. It was great. (laughs) It was over my head. I I can't handle this art. Yeah. That's where Tyler, what are we doing? It was what is happening. It was too intelligent a joke for it was. you. It just, <laughs> woo. Yeah, the problem is it, it couldn't get caught in my hair. <laughs> I'm all up in All right. Okay. <laughs> okay. So tonight, tonight we are going to talk about the Pathfinder Second Edition Rune System for armor and weapons, and we're going to talk about adapting that to D and D Fifth Edition. We're going to look at how you would do that we're going to look at why you might do that and why you might not and generally we're just, we're just going to examine how this could work in theory and i think that's going to reveal some interesting things about the mechanics of both systems and about how magic items are presented in both. nice okay let's do that let's talk some philosophy very briefly so in fifth edition magic items are technically an optional rule and they Ooh. have yeah, yeah, booing. <laughs> the game is nominally written so that it can be played without the use of magic item. In theory, that is lies. Yeah. You are lying, sir. <laughs> Look, this is how it was pitched. This is how it was advertised when they published the game. Whether or not that actually, <laughs> I I call absolute lies and horse donkey on that because I have tried to run a game without magic or magic items and it was awful <laughs> it just did not work it's like what did i find did i find something cool you found another spear D- is it magical no <laughs> all these weapons Yay. are exactly like the others okay Yay. actually i want to go back in, in the wayback machine for just a moment the way that you phrase that in previous editions of D were magic items optional to the game no not really no then why why Early- do this that, okay, I won't make um, you defend it. I won't well, make you defend it. I think I, I think I think I have an explanation for this. So I will just say, I know that Pathfinder Two had its own addressing of the situation in Pathfinder One, and I assume in Three Point Five, magic items were a big problem. <laughs> they were a seriously big problem to the point, like a lot of there were so many magic items, and so many of them could break the game in one way or another. And it got to the point where, in order to make certain builds even function or worth it, you needed specific magic items to make it work. And if your DM didn't give you those magic items, oh well, you're kind of screwed. 
And then I believe in 4E, they tried to fix the problem, but it just made it worse. Where, you know, they tried to bake in the magic items within the class features. Uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong about that, Tyler, but it didn't make anybody happy. <laughs> um, That's pretty close. But yeah, so 5th edition, I think, was overcompensating to like, okay, magic items ruined both systems. So let's just pull back and just say, hey, here's some cool magic items. They are completely optional now because it was a huge problem in 3.5 and Pathfinder. And Pathfinder 2 tried to address it in its own system, which we'll talk about in a minute. But this was 5e's answer to it, which, again, 5e's answer to a system that isn't working is... DM's discretion. (laughs) Everybody everybody up for a little DM's discretion? Uh, Yeah, yeah, exactly. When unsure, DM fiat. When we really aren't sure, just cut it out entirely. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Look, I don't know either. You folks figure it out. My understanding of the history there, pre-third edition magic items, they weren't strictly tied to progression. If you found a plus one sword, it was truly like, oh, you you were ahead of the math of the game. Of course, like the math of the game was a little looser. The game was arguably less crunchy, although that's debatable considering the reliance on charts. But magic items felt a bit more magical rather than just like, ah, yes, my numbers are all now plus one. And in third edition, magic items became just an assumption of the game. Like you got magic items as you progressed. You could buy them off the shelf in a store. There was a predetermined wealth by level curve that was part of the game. And if you weren't roughly close to that wealth by level curve, the game's balance would be thrown off wildly. Yeah, even within that, like Ash said, there were certain magic items that could just bust the game because players are clever. You know how everybody freaks out about certain magic items in 5e, like Mm -hmm. Deck of Many Things or Instant Fortress or that kind of stuff? That was a lot of magic items in Pathfinder 1. Yeah. <laughs> it was just, there were so many that were just stupid overpowered. And the thing was, was that you could craft a lot of those items. So it got to the point, like mm-hmm. everybody talks about how Pathfinder had a problem with feet tax, mm-hmm. where you needed certain feats in order to be viable. If you were a wizard, oh man, you had so much fun with feet tax because if you wanted to keep up with the with the progression and your DM was kind of stingy with the magic items, and even if they weren't, it still would be almost kind of necessary for you to take like craft wondrous item or those other feats that allow you to create the incredibly godly magic items just so that you can be functional as you keep uh, progressing forward. Yeah, crafting was incredibly powerful in those systems. Oh, yeah. 4E weirdly made that different, not necessarily worse. Magic items were, again, very much an assumed part of the game to the point where at the beginning of a campaign, you would look at all of magic items over like the level range you expected the game to run and give your DM a wish list saying, like, these are the items I want for my character to function the way I want. The DM was expected to give them to you. When you created a character of any level except first level, you got a magic item of one level above you, one item of your level, one item of a level below you, and then gold equal to an item of a level below you. And this was very important for organized play because it meant you could always reverse engineer a character and you could always verify that people had exactly the right amount of equipment. But it also made it feel very video gamey because it's like, oh, is your Bloodseeker sword a plus one, a plus two, or a plus three? Great. Chop, chop that down. I think that contributed to the overall impression that uh, people like to say that fourth edition is like, we saw how popular World of Warcraft is. Let's see if we can replicate that in a tabletop format. <laughs> that was a popular criticism. So fifth edition, they went they went back towards like pre-third edition design philosophy where you didn't strictly need magic items. Getting one should feel special. It should significantly change things for your character in some way beyond just, oh, my numbers are plus one. The prevalence of creatures that have resistance to non-magical weapon attacks means either your party's main spellcasters need to commit concentration to casting magic weapon on you in like half of the fights you're in, which, no, no one's ever going to do that ever. No. Or you need to have magic weapons in the game for the game to function as intended. They probably went in with a very noble, sensible goal and just when the dice hit the table, it did not work out. 
I feel like the itemization in 5th edition also runs into the spellcaster bias again because there are some really awesome spellcaster magic items there's not that many great martial magic <laughs> items. What do you, what do you mean? There's like plus the sort of casts and then <laughs> plus two. Yeah. The only thing that I can think of is the sort of casts, and that's about it. That has something that's not just like you get to roll some extra dice and add damage. That's kind of true. Yeah. Matt Mercer tried to fix this with the vestiges in Exandria. And I think he actually put in some pretty cool games. And I think that's a really cool system that you can use, like especially with like weapons that evolve over time. Like that's a really cool system and it makes your players attached to their weapons and it gives them cool, your marshals cool stuff to do. And so your spellcaster isn't always like taking, taking the, the spotlight in my career as a DM for fifth edition, I tend to crap uh, to homebrew most of the magic, more magic items than I pull out of the DMG because the ones in the DMG are kind of underwhelming. If I'm being honest, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, but that takes a lot of commitment too, to like to to get that right and to have a system that's just gonna work. And then you discover five levels down the road that oh, we have made a mistake. A little too generous with that particular <laughs> item. Yeah, yeah. So are are we happy with the state of magic items in 5e? I feel like as you're calling out one big concern, which is that, yeah, if you're a marshal, like, what do I get to do? You get to stab things and get stabbed back. Okay, cool. What do I get to do with cool magic weapons? They hit a little harder. You're more likely to hit. Is that is that good? It's basically it, yeah. I think if you're a spellcaster, you're going to have a great great time with 5th edition's magic items. But then again, you're going to have a great time regardless because spellcasters rock in 5th edition. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're a marshal and you're expecting for magic items to make up for some of your deficiencies, you're going to be incredibly disappointed. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Like, I mean, even for casters, it's like, I'm going to give you... What are your... War okay, cool. Your warlock. How, how about more... more couple more spell slots let's party <laughs> like you're a yeah. sorcerer like uh, i got some sorcerer yeah. coins we can store for you like is that is that good do you want that is that good for you yeah um, it's good for me but, yeah. but spells make me better so i love them and this is another issue that i just have with fifth edition in general is that in order to make things cooler or give marshals more options magic items that are like class neutral tend to just give you free spells which is great and all but that just seems to be their answer to everything is like you get spells as a feature it's to the point where like if you if you want it was the issue i was running into when i was trying to run a low fantasy setting there are like i'm trying to think there's like two or three classes in the entire game that don't interact with spell casting in some fashion and i believe it's fighter and rogue that's it barbarian and barbarian yeah yeah barbarian I'm, that's it i mean fighter has the eldritch knight so yeah, rogue has yeah. the yeah, tricks. but I mean, no. you could you you, yeah. you could take yeah, you have to take off eldritch knight and arcane archer, and arguably maybe act like rune knight, and so it's just like okay, so I can pick battle master, echo knight, or champion. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> I'm having so much fun. <laughs> uh, you are. I think that's sarcasm. I read it. Uh, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. I agree. 5e does tend to think like, okay, if you want to make a magic item interesting, just make it cast spells. That does feel like kind of an underwhelming solution. But, but spells are the good part. Come on. It feels like a cop. Yeah, but they always yeah, give them a like garbage a DC. Okay. Right. So like the spells never yeah, work anyway. I, I have to call it. This isn't actually what we came here to talk about tonight. No. Like, which we actually found to like, <laughs> I, I feel like it's important to talk about because we're going to get into Pathfinder 2 system in a minute on magic items and why I think it's better. I wouldn't say perfect, but it's definitely better. Like Tyler said, the, some of the DCs, depending on when you get these items or what rarity, they're going to be really underwhelming at best or not work at the worst because you out-level them. Yeah. And even even if they're just going to put spells on it, at least come up with a unique spell that you can't get anywhere else. Instead, it's just like, oh, you can cast something that's already on your list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we, we laid out the premise up front. Uh, the premise is we want to talk through Pathfinder 2 runes. We want to explain how they work. And then we're going to make a pitch that this is actually something we can bring to 5e. So we're going to do that in a minute. Let's not dive into yeah, it quite absolutely. yet. I want to pose the question at the highest level. What is the pitch here? Why, when we look at magic items in 5e, are we saying, you know, it'd be cool. Let's bring PF2 runes to this. Let me ask you a philosophical question. 
what is the best uncommon magic item for a martial character knowing essentially nothing else about them plus one's weapon is it it plus one or plus two uncommon plus two becomes rare so we're perfect plus one plus one it is is rare plus three plus three is very rare yeah Yeah, so yeah plus one uh and when I give people an option to pick an uncommon item, if there's a fighter or some sort of melee person, martial class in my uh, parties, they mm-hmm. always pick a plus one because it's the only option. It's it's so good. Like it, within 5e's bounded math, a plus X bonus to anything is almost unbeatable. It is very frequently a better choice for your character to go down a rarity to get a plus whatever weapon than to take whatever you find in a pile of loot. A plus X item is so good in 5e that it mathematically invalidates most other choices. And it is boring. And and we're saying it's so good. Mm -hmm. Like, let's highlight. So for a a straight roll, so no advantage, no no disadvantage. If I have a plus one weapon, I have an extra 5% chance to hit. And I have an extra guaranteed point of damage. Let's say you're a fighter. You have an action surge in, in, in in a middle tier of play. If you really need to dole out some damage, you're going to make four attacks. You have a 5% chance extra to hit on each of those attacks. You have a guaranteed extra four damage. Maybe that's not so exciting, but just that that higher likelihood of hitting accumulating over the course of a campaign, it's tremendous. It really is meaningful. But at the same time, like I, like I called out a couple times earlier, it's it's one of those things where all it does is your numbers go up by one. And like that's kind of neat for a second and mathematically yes it does absolutely pay off but it doesn't feel fun it doesn't feel unique you didn't give me uh, extra buttons i hit the same button i was hitting before i hit the same button and get the exact same outcome except it's five percent more shiny i don't know it's actually worse than that because it's gotten to a point that it's just the expected requirement now that you're going to get the plus one. And if you don't get it, then your DM's a jerk. So <laughs> you either get that plus one really quick or you, you yell at your DM until they give it to you. Cause it's just the only thing that makes your class worth it. Especially with, we talked about how there's several, there's not an insert insignificant number of creatures that have resistance to non-magical damage. So either that's something that you're going to be dealing with all the time or not at all. There's no in-between. Yeah. Look, look at me being even more ineffective. <laughs> exactly. Let's see. So Randall, our, our current Dragonlance campaign, last session and, and the session before that, like we acquired a few new magic items and we were all looking around at each other's gear and like, shuffling things around trying to get the party equipped as well as possible and we eventually got to the point that we have a couple of extra plus one weapons that no one can do anything with like nobody we have a plus one long yeah we have a plus one long sword the only person in the party proficient in long swords is the paladin and he's busy using his plus three dragon lance so it's like no one's going to use this sword. It's essentially vendor trash. It's going to go in somebody's pocket and we'll forget about it until the end of the campaign. So like that, that presents another issue. Like the, those plus one weapons, unless they're specifically useful for whatever character finds them, they're essentially garbage. Generally, when adventures are written, they're going to try and pick treasure that appeals to like the lowest common denominator, the broadest number of characters. So a plus one long sword is like the easiest piece of loot you can possibly throw into a game. It's like healing potions, gold, plus one long sword. That can work in almost any party. Throw it in a pile, hope for the best. But if, if you can't use that, it's great. What a shiny paperweight we have found. Very heavy shiny paperweight. So now let's talk about PF2. Let's talk about the rune system and how it works. Rather than wait, magic wait, wait, items wait, wait, being... Wait, wait, wait. What? You never actually answered the question. So Which question? Ele- elevator pitch. Why elevator are we pitch. looking at magic items in 5e and saying we should be talking about PF2 runes? You're right. I did lose, lose sight of the question, didn't I? <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. why I'm here. My thinking is the rune system in PF2 neatly solves a lot of the problems with plus X equipment in D&D 5e. It allows you to change the equipment to suit the specific needs of your character and your party. It allows you to benefit from finding that loot 
even if you're not like you find a plus one longsword, you go, oh, I don't care that that's a longsword, but I'm going to move this rune onto a weapon I actually care about and have a plus one pointy stick or whatever. The the property runes let you do something beyond just here is my plus one sword. It gives the players the ability to rearrange their equipment, customize what they have based on what they have found rather than just I have a plus one longsword and this is what it shall be forever. In general, it offers a ton of flexibility, both for the players that have found the treasure and for the DM to say, like, I want to give them a plus one weapon, but I can't guarantee what weapon they're going to have. So I'll just, here's rune, they're going to go find with it. And the other big reason why we're talking about is uh, property runes are very fun. They have cool features that do a lot of varied things and allow marshals to do things that they can't do normally. Which is great, which is what they should be doing. <laughs> simple, simple <laughs> answer. Feels pretty good. Okay, I'm satisfied. Thank you both. I really appreciate that. Yeah, let's hop in. Let's talk about PF2 runes. There's two varieties of runes, and these apply to armor and weapons. There are uh, durability runes for shields. Just set those aside. Don't care for sight's purposes. There's three kinds uh, of runes. I'm sorry, go ahead. Just <laughs> I said what you said, but I said it a lot faster. That's all. Okay. Go ahead. There's fundamental runes and there's property runes. Ash mentioned property runes a minute ago. Property runes add something spicy to your weapon. They're the fun ones. Like crushing, for instance, which allows you to, when you critically hit a target with your weapon, it becomes clumsy one and enfeebled one. That's cool. Yeah. That's awesome. That's a it great... allows me to inflict... Con- yeah. yeah. Allows me to inflict different conditions on people and it makes my crits even more fun. Yeah. Uh... <laughs> Fundamental runes are boring but necessary to the math of the game. They provide the the plus X bonuses, and then for weapons, they'll add additional weapon damage dice. So that allows your character to scale mathematically over the course of the game. Wait, Tyler, are you telling me that my weapon damage dice actually increases and not my number of attacks? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, because that doesn't work that way in 5th edition. <laughs> that's a good fifth point. 5th edition, I hope you like that 1d8's longsword because that's the damage it's going to be for the rest of the game. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I've been training with this for 20 levels. doesn't matter. You got a little stronger. Uh, you got dueling oh, you mean the wizard one. is. You mean the warlock is now able to shoot three beams, each that does 1d10, and I can still only do a d8 plus my strength modifier. <laughs> Yeah, this is equal. This is an equal trade. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) But look how many hit points you have. You've got like five more than the (laughs) Warthog. Accurate. Tell us how you really feel. Uh, (laughs) All right. So fundamental runes. Those are the boring mathy ones, but they are important. And it does feel feel pretty great to get a striking rune and be like, oh, look, my great my great axe does. 2d12 now or 3d12 or even 4d12 at high levels it's like i'm gonna do so much damage with this thing and i'm very excited thank you so so uh, let's take striking runes for a minute there are tiers of striking runes i can have a striking rune i have a greater striker rune. striking i get two dice greater striking how many dice do i get uh three dice that's that's amazing so then, it went one two and then three that that's perfect that's yeah. so easy to remember yeah um <laughs> So I'm I'm a I'm a DM sitting at home and I was like, you know, I hear that system, but like my my level three characters, they're gonna get one of these runes and 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 they're gonna they're gonna break my whole game, right? That that's what's gonna happen. Nope, nope, did, not did they think at of that? all. Because runes, they did indeed. Because runes are now leveled; they are restricted by level. Each of the striking runes, like we mentioned, like lesser, greater, moderate, that kind of stuff all are have level requirements so your players cannot take them too early and break the fundamental math of the system even some of those property runes are also leveled each item each magic item that you can find each each rune has a has a level requirement on it it's not just well this is uncommon this is rare and this is very rare and this is the level bracket that you should give them it's like no this is this is specifically a magic item that is geared towards a level 3 or a level 6 player and it's worth saying for folks who are maybe a little unfamiliar with the PF2. So w- one of the the features of the PF2 system is that literally everything has a level. Uh, so the way Ash just described it is exactly right. Anything that your players might acquire, any feat they might take, any spell they might learn, there will be a level associated with it until they're an appropriate level. Your characters will not be able to take it. And so we were talking about striking runes for a, a second ago. Striking rune is a it's a level four rune. 
Uh, meaning no, no matter what, and I guess this is worth saying, I put all these different runes on an item. The level of the item now is the highest level of all runes applied to it and the item itself. And so what that means is there is no way for my players to use that level four striking rune until they're at least level four. So it's nice. Unless you, as a DM, decide to give them an overpowered... Well, that's uh, your problem. Uh, a higher level weapon. But that, <laughs> then that's your fault. Yeah. It's on you. So you don't really have a reason to complain at that Especially point. Especially not to us. But that's great. Yeah, exactly. It, it, I think it solves a huge issue with 5th edition just by giving each item a level. Because uh, one of the biggest, biggest mistakes I see new DMs make is they get, they don't know how to give... Like what is fair to give their players at certain levels. And so they end up giving them this really overpowered weapon that completely breaks their entire game. And they're just like, I don't know how this happened. Mm -hmm. It's just like, yeah, because 5e doesn't tell you that, hey, you shouldn't give this very rare item to a level three character. (laughs) (laughs) It has suggestions, but it mostly is just like, do whatever you want. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> so, so Tyler was walking us through the fundamental runes. Mm-hmm. I, I think folks at home, kind of the way they were talking about plus one, plus two, plus three weapons in 5e, the fundamental runes are really giving us that same idea that we can we, we can deal more damage, but we can do more damage by adding dice or we can improve the quality of our armor. Yeah, exactly. Fundamental runes aside, the property runes are the ones that I really want to focus on tonight because I feel like that's where we're going to get a lot of mileage here. We can look at the fundamental runes and look at PF2's system for how they work and like, okay, you can take the plus one off of this longsword that we found in the garbage and we can put the plus one on the ranger's longbow and suddenly the ranger has a plus one weapon, everyone is happy and whoever wrote and published the adventure doesn't have to be like, just give them plus one whatever they use, just make that part of the system it makes sense in world like oh yes they just magic runes they go on weapons weapons are great property runes are going to do cool stuff like make your weapon do fire damage or like ash called out the crushing rune it, it imposes a couple of debuffs on crit you could reasonably look at a lot of the magic items in the fifth edition dungeon master's guide and grab all the weapons that aren't just a plus whatever and say okay what if the special effect from this thing could be removed from the item and just slapped onto whatever I want. Like, what if you found a dwarven thrower, pulled off the throwing rune, and put it on a different weapon, like a spear or something? What if you found a flame tongue and took the flaming rune off of it and put it on a crossbow, and now you've got a crossbow that shoots firebolts? I want that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's uh, <laughs> dope. Because that's right? the point. Yeah, okay. It's really dope. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of worked like this back in 3rd edition, 3X, PF1, but the the enhancements were still permanent. So, like, you still had the issue of, like, ah, I found a plus one flaming longsword. That's great. I use rapiers. Yeah, the runes make it portable. The one drawback to maybe the system is that it makes crafting not as good as it was because now you can only really craft things of your level. Whereas before, you could craft things that are way outside of your level (laughs) if you had the resources to do so. I feel like it's a necessary trade-off because that was a big problem in 3rd edition. Well, let let me ask you, though. Could we compromise and say that I would let you, in 5e, I would let you craft the item. If you want to craft it and go try to sell it, that's fine. Go nuts. You still can't use the item until you're at an appropriate level. Does that cure what you're concerned with? Yeah. Okay. I think that's a fair. I think that's a fair trade-off. Gold's meaningless. Um, yeah, I would be. <laughs> um, yeah, I think we're not gonna we're not gonna get that's into true. it. Like there, there of course is in in the crafting system in PF two is rich. There is a description of how to craft these items from scratch, the runes from scratch. There's also a description and a cost associated with transferring. I think we could skip the details of that, but if this is something that you're excited about, definitely get into archives of Nethys, or if you have it at home, crack open the core cool rulebook. And, and you can find exactly the rules. And I think those things will probably carry over pretty well. So, so one thing on the, the level cap for magic items in 5e, we have an article on the site called the Practical Guide to Campaign Planning, where I went into the math of allocating encounters, experience rewards, treasure, gold, all of those things across the level spectrum. If you take a look at the tables in there, it'll give you an indication of when the game actually expects players to start finding magic items of various rarities, both minor magic items, which are usually consumables, and major magic items, which are probably the fun ones. 
if you're never sure like what is an appropriate level for my players to have this magic item just check the the wealth by level table and see what level items of that rarity start popping up and then you can have a general idea that it's safe to grant those items then i I think it would be worth let's take one of the property runes let's take a weapon property rune I, i have a proposal but if somebody has something better we could do it let's maybe walk top to bottom just to give folks at home a feeling for what do these runes look like what do their descriptions look like so that when we begin to talk about what it means to take them from pf2 into 5e it's a little more clear we have an example to work against sounds good yeah i love that idea okay there are two that jump out of me and they happen to be the first two there but i think they're actually a lot of fun so we have uh, anarchic and axiomatic they're basically two sides of the same coin one of them in summary is that if you're a chaotic aligned character you get to deal an extra 1d6 chaotic damage when you use the weapon and if a lawful aligned character were to pick up the weapon and try to carry it they would be enfeebled too and then the axiomatic is the exact opposite you get a benefit if you're lawful and if anybody who's chaotic tries to pick it up they get the enfeebled too condition so it's 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 symmetric i think those are fun is there one that either of you would be like no no no, no we absolutely have to do this one instead honestly i think those are great there's a lot of fun ones i found one called deathless which you can use a reaction to activate it if you uh, the trigger has to be if you gain the doomed or wounded condition so you reduce the value of the triggering condition by one just useful especially if you're a person that goes down a lot (laughs) (laughs) i keep keep dying give me that rune okay nice Mm -hmm. Let's say we want to adapt the axiomatic and anarchic weapon properties into something that we could put on a weapon in 5e. So let's say we just transfer it blindly. We keep the 1d6 extra damage. We keep the alignment restriction. And then we we can adjust the penalty for not having the right alignment because Enfeebled doesn't exist in 5e. So it could just be like, you take a minus two to ability checks or something like that, or just you gain a level of exhaustion. I think there are a couple items that do that, like Holy Avengers. If you're an evil character and you pick them up, you take some kind of penalty. So we could probably just steal from there. Yeah. In addition to Anarchic and Axiomatic, there's also Holy and Unholy, which are the good and evil versions of the same thing. Back in 3.5, Holy Avengers were a plus five Holy Longsword that had like a couple other things like you could cast dispel magic for free whenever you wanted so if you were going to put that property on a weapon like nothing else on the weapon like you you have an anarchic great sword what rarity would you want to call that um an anarchic great sword yeah i would say considering that yeah that anarchic is a level 11 is it really yeah it's a level 11 rune i i would say probably very rare okay. or rare yeah that's what i would say and now i i'd probably go a little lower than that the let's see so part of the reason those weapon property runes are such high level in pf2 is because they trigger vulnerabilities like fiends generally have a vulnerability to holy damage so if you can do even one point sorry not holy damage good damage and of course this is all pre-remaster in the remaster they changed it to spirit damage and it's this whole thing so pre-remaster fiends had vulnerability to good damage so if you did even one point of good damage you got a big pile of additional damage so those alignment property runes are extremely powerful but 5e doesn't have that so anarchic and axiomatic are essentially just a plus 1d6 bonus damage gated behind whatever alignment your character is to use that that's fair so yeah then maybe uncommon yeah i could see that yeah i guess that's kind of the alternative is you figure out so the the second part of the the rune that i didn't read aloud but just to do it right quick let's say we're working with the anarchic i am chaotic i get the benefit if i strike a lawful aligned creature I roll 1d6 on a 1 or 2, I deal double my minimum damage. On a 3 or 4, I double the damage normally. And on a 5 or 6, I deal double my maximum damage. And so, Tyler, this is what you're getting at, that it, it is triggering that vulnerability. And as you said, like we, we're, we're not necessarily tracking that in, in 5e. We don't have that. If you were going to try to port this and make a judgment call as a DM about the lawfulness of every creature that this particular adventurer stabs, I think this has to be a rare item, right? Like, that's so good to be able to deal double max damage. 
on on any strike when I'm fight, when I'm fighting per, perhaps right kick. I'd say yeah, with that with that weird effect on the D six, I'd say yeah, rare probably makes more sense. Plus, it means you're going to have less of yeah. those items slowing down the game. I thought it was just here's Ac- a D six, you no, get that damage. No, no, no. Yeah, it all, all, axiomatic also has a similar effect. This is hmm. what I love about these two. Like anarchic <laughs> has a very in character rune attached to it, effect to it, and axiomatic does something similar. When you critically hit character with a chaotic alignment you do the average damage of each of your weapon damage dice. <laughs> that is the most axiomatic thing I could possibly think of. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. On crit, enforce the law of averages. It's perfect. It's beautiful. Actually, honestly, <laughs> it, it probably makes most people sad. Most lawful people are it's like, I hate this. It's like, oh, but you chose lawful and you love math. Because uh, that, that's how that works. Yeah. And also, that's that's also just better for you because like yeah your ceiling is higher but your floor your ceiling would be higher if you were allowed to roll but your floor <laughs> is a lot higher too because now if if i have two d12s my minimum damage on a crit is 14 plus whatever bonuses mm-hmm. so that's just that's insane Pretty good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, and so i uh, think we could yeah because in pathfinder 2 you doubled the whole damage including modifiers not just the dice yeah so, so in 5e, if we're bringing this over, I could imagine doing it either way. I could either say, I'm not going to do that additional content. I'm going to bring over the, the core base. You're just going to get an extra 1d6. That's exciting. Like, that's fun in 5e already. And I think we all agree that that's uncommon. But if we're going to get the whole shebang and I'm willing to drive this for you, and it's a particular campaign where like, yeah, you're chaotic. And we're fighting a lot of lawful folks. Well, oh, super rare. I'm glad this is behind, you know. If, if we're going uncommon, right, I'm willing to give this to you at an earlier level. Otherwise, if we're, if we're taking the full shebang, I'm not giving that to you till after level 11. Like, no way. <laughs> yeah, too complicated. Yeah. No, too, too much damage. <laughs> that too. <laughs> We've looked at adapting the rune. We've looked at a good example, setting the rarity, potentially gating it behind level based on both your campaign and just how good the effect is. One of the one of the things that the PF2 rune system allows is as you add additional pluses, like your your plus one item can have one property rune. Your plus two item can have two property runes and then plus three the same. So you can have up to three property runes on a suit of armor or on a single weapon, which means you can mix and match to build some pretty powerful combinations. Like if you want to build around critical hits, you could just stack on crit effects and get really, really crazy. Would we want to allow that in 5e? Like if we have a system of runes and characters could say like, okay, I've got these two uncommon runes that have cool properties. Could we throw them on a single weapon without causing trouble? My instinct is ever the optimist is 100%. Yeah, like let's party. Let's let a marshal break the game because they're too powerful. You wizards get all the fun. You have a point. Would, <laughs> would you like, not that you believe in right. it, but could you devil's advocate um, this? Like, is there an argument against letting them have fun? I mean, letting them have multiple runes? I'd say it's probably fine. You just might need to set some kind of progression restriction on it. Like one rune on a weapon, probably fine as uncommon. Two runes, probably compare it to rare. Three runes, call it very rare. That would let players still mix and match the property runes for the weapons that they want to use and build something that truly suits their concept for their character. But also you would still have that built-in rarity system for roughly controlling the wealth and power of the could we just straight take what PF2 is doing and say, okay, I'm going to put level restrictions on plus one, plus two, and plus three. And we could talk about what those maybe ought to be. And then once you have that plus two weapon, yes, you can do two property runes. So I'm not necessarily gating the runes or the combination of the runes. What I'm gating is when you get the plus two. And then obviously at that point, it unlocks the ability to consolidate two property runes onto that single weapon. Yeah, I, I think that exactly makes sense. Now, here's an idea. So PF2 gates the number of property runes you can have behind the plus whatever bonus on your item. My plus two sword is now also on fire. We probably don't want that without changing the rarity. So what if putting one of the property runes onto your weapon reduced its enhancement bonus by one? So like you have your cool plus one longsword, you find a, an axiomatic rune 
and you could say, okay, I am willing to give up my plus one bonus to instead have this plus one D six bonus damage. Do you guys think you would use that as a player? Ash, this sounds like wizard propaganda. I mean, have have you come to expect anything else from Tyler? I, I, I mean, if, if, if it, if Tyler if Tyler lived in a fantasy world, he would be one of those guys who has a poster in his room that says "Wizard Supremacy." <laughs> Tattoos, just staffs. I, yeah, mm-hmm. I. Uh, mm-hmm. If if it was becoming Gabriel, like we actually play tested this, and the result was, oh, the marshals are now a problem. What you're describing makes perfect sense to me. I, I want to ask you the question in PF2. My take on rarity is my interpretation, and I think the the rule book reads this to me, but I don't read it. An item having rarity. I don't read the book. <laughs> I don't read the yeah. book. Screw the book. I can. I'll figure. I'll make up my own rules. Do I don't need no dang. Uh, no, no. But uncommon, for instance, the the biggest thing that uncommon's doing for us is it's giving the GM an out to basically say, "I get to say if this is in the game." There's some guidance for whether or not I should make rare items available what kind of worlds are suitable for this sort of thing. But ultimately, the biggest thing it's doing is giving the GM an out to say, this isn't going to be available in all games. This doesn't exist in the Galarian that I'm running. I say that to say, you're asking about the rarity in 5e. What drives you to want to focus on the rarity versus maybe straight just setting a level cap for an item? Well, let's see. So rarity is the closest thing that 5e has to a level cap. Like there, there's no strict restriction saying a first level character couldn't use a legendary item. And arguably that's intentional because that could be a really fun campaign. Like you're all level one. Each of you gets one legendary magic item and good luck. You, you can't do that in PF2 because of those level restrictions. And like, you know, PF2 has a much tighter grip on the game's math. And like that is part of the design of the game. Whereas 5e is much more loosey goosey when it comes to magic items. Since it is the system that we have within the rules of 5e, using rarity as an indicator for the rough power level of a magic item gives us some guardrails. And then we can say like, okay, the the fighter has their plus one frost damage great axe that they're using and we're gonna we're gonna compare that to a rare magic item and then other people in the party who aren't using those weapon runes can say like, okay, the DM is going to give them a roughly equivalent item of the same rarity. And then everyone feels special because everyone has gotten something of roughly equivalent value. Okay. I do follow that. That makes, that makes good sense to me. I will say I was kind of assuming that we would more or less, maybe with some tweaks to the exact numbers, kind of bring the actual level caps over and just take that guidance. Cause it's probably solid guidance. I take your point though, that one of the, maybe the benefits of IV is that there's nothing Okay, it could be mechanically broken, but like you said, there's nothing that says I can't hand a level one adventure a plus three weapon and say we're going to town literally. Like let's let's go do this happen. Yeah, I mean that is that is one of the beauties of five e is that if you want to give your players an overpowered item, you can do that. As Mike Merle said, if my players break the game, I can break the game twelve times over more than they can. I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what he said. <laughs> that, that's what I heard yeah. him say. I, I hear this. I will say I could do that in PF2 as well. Like I'd be breaking the rule, but I could I could still hand them the item. But no, it's good. So now that I'm aligned with what you're really trying to drive at is 5e has a rarity system. The rarity system is meant to be the guidance to the DM as to whether or not it's appropriate for the party to have this item, whether it's appropriate for the party to have lots of equivalent items at this level. And, and so with that, yeah, just trying to figure out how we manage it. So, so going back, the supposition you had a second ago was what if, you know, you've got that plus two weapon, but I'll let you turn it into a plus one and a property rune. What I'm trying to think through is like, would you want to give the players some reasonable flexibility to convert back and forth? Like either on a long rest or if you had some idea of like downtime, if they have proper downtime during downtime, they're allowed to maybe pivot these. I'd say yes. Like the part of the appeal of the runes is that you can trade them in and out. You can switch to different runes if you want them. Like you can trade runes with members of your party, buy and sell them, all those things and, you know, work out what runes you want for your character and eventually get them. PF2 requires a crafting check to inscribe the runes on an item or to remove them from one item and put them on another. 
So we could very reasonably say like, you need some tool proficiency, like blacksmith tools for metal weapons, wood carpenters tools for wooden weapons, things like that. And then say, okay, if you have the appropriate tool, you can, you can apply the rune to an item or remove the rune from an item. And you can just say, you need a plus X item as a base. And then you put one property rune on and it reduces the enhancement bonus by whatever you take the property rune off enhancement bonus comes back or, or you could do away with that enhancement bonus thing entirely and just say like, there are also plus whatever runes and like you can take your plus one rune and your plus two rune and get a plus three rune. If you're really crazy, I don't know. No, I think, I think that makes good sense to me. Yeah, me too. You've sold me. But is it a good idea? It's a great idea. I think. How, so I, I feel like in this conversation we focus. Hey, no, all, all of this is experimentation. None of this is yeah. a great idea. We're we're trying to shift a system to a different system, and you know I think it's okay because Five E said we don't know. Figure it out. DM Fiat. <laughs> that's what we're doing. Yeah. Well, that's what we're doing. Yeah. Look, how do you think uh, they made Reese's peanut butter cups? That's all I'm saying. Bad luck. <laughs> Officer, he got. He got chocolate in my peanut butter. He got peanut butter in my chocolate. Except for its magic <laughs> items. You see? Yeah, you get it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. I want to ask you a okay. question. So we've talked a lot about weapon runes in this conversation because it's a spicy bit. It's what we think most of when we think of 5e. Of course, we do have armor runes in PF2. Is there anything interesting going to happen when we bring armor runes into 5e the same way that we're talking about the weapon runes? Well, that deathless rune that I brought up earlier is an armor rune i'm struggling to think of any armor in fifth edition outside of the robe of the magi and adamantine armor that's actually interesting at all besides like a plus one armor or a plus two armor like a robe of stars there's there's dragon scale armor it's scale mail that gives you damage resistance to one okay that's pretty cool uh one thing that i saw it was a supplement that someone made for 5th edition that allowed you to take different parts from a creature and craft them into different materials for armors, which would, is a very cool system. Like you could make bone mail armor, which gives you like resistance to slashing damage. Or there's spider silk armor, which, al- which gives you bonuses to like stealth checks. I thought you were saying it gives you like resistance that. to Tyler. <laughs> that too that too i mean even just doing that you don't need magic runes for that like allowing people to craft different armors from materials of monsters that they find now we're playing monster hunter and that <laughs> i think everybody's on board for that like there, there are a few third-party supplements that have done that really well frog god games has tome of alchemy cubicle seven has a kickstarter running for one right now gosh what is it called We'll link it in the show notes. I sincerely can't remember. It's something, something alchemy. Solidly named. Something, something dark side. (laughs) Something, something, something complete. (laughs) But to your point, Randall, like the the same logic would apply, essentially. Like we, we could do the same thing where like you have a plus X suit of armor, you have a rune, you put it on, the plus goes down by some amount, and instead you get that rune property and that allows you to build out your custom armor. And then how powerful it is changes the rarity and you can just work within that system. Like weapons and armor scale in roughly the same way in 5e. So it's, yeah, it's pretty much pretty much the same thing, but you just have a slightly different set of runes available because like ah, you, you don't need plus four fire damage on your armor, but you probably want that on a weapon. Yeah, that, that, that makes good sense to me. All right. I want us to create, there's three of us, let's create a plus three weapon. With three property runes. Oh, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> okay. So, okay. I really want there to be a property rune that increases the critical threat range. Like, I I don't know if that would be safe enough for, like, a single rarity step. What do you guys think? I, I think there is a property rune in Pathfinder 2 called, I think it's called Keen. Should be, yeah. Because there was one, there was a property. Yeah, yeah. Keen, here we yeah, go. Yeah, so critical hit, 19 uh, on the die. Of, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's not bad. Okay, I got a wild, wild pitch for you guys. Okay. This is going to be a broken ass weapon, <laughs> but it's going to be, it, it's going to be dope. So very rare, obviously, plus three. We're going to put a Keen on there. We're going to put a Holy 
rune on there and we're going to put an axiomatic rune on there and call it the holy to call it the holy avenger the actual holy avenger because this thing <laughs> does really good stuff so we already talked about what axiomatic does and we're going to put all of that stuff that like even the average damage stuff because that's just very cool but holy so where is holy i have it here do you want me to read the effect aloud oh you got it okay i i I got I got it. Yeah. So you do an extra D6 good damage against evil targets and you can activate it as a reaction. The trigger has to be you critically succeed on attack roll against an evil creature with the weapon. The effect is you regain HP equal to double the evil creature's level, which is very good. This is a good positive healing effect. So mm-hmm. so we're going to crit more frequently and on crit you heal yourself. And you do average damage uh, from <laughs> equal to the, uh, how many damage dice you have essentially okay. so if this is a this is a plus three weapon that means i don't know if we should add the striking ruins to it because that seems like overkill <laughs> not in you mean, you mean <laughs> otherwise, awesome? uh, uh, yeah otherwise you're going to be dealing 48 <laughs> damage on this weapon like if it's a long sword you're going to do 48 and then average of that would be six no five damage for each one of those, which comes up to minimum damage of 20 on a crit, plus uh, oh, plus the other 2d6. So that's... Um, 27? An, 28, yeah, depending no, no, on how no. you handle it's, it. It's 28. Yeah, it's 28. That's how they handle it. <laughs> that's um, pretty brutal. I gotta say, I think I would rather I would rather the Anarchic, like, we could build the opposite weapon with Unholy and Anarchic, and I feel like that would be a lot of fun. <laughs> the, the crit impact for Unholy is... That could be fun. Uh, 1d8 persistent bleed damage and that's a lot of fun uh that's pretty dope yeah, yeah. okay we could make that the unholy avenger yeah it's beautiful <laughs> so, or okay so i i would say we we don't want to bring striking runes over from pf2 5e's math is no. not built to handle that but like nope we we could bring over the holy, unholy, anarchic, axiomatic. We could bring those over. We might need to adjust the effects a little bit. Or we could just say, like, some runes cost a plus one enhancement bonus, some cost more, which, I mean, that's essentially how it worked in 3.5. is like some special properties were worth plus one, plus two, et cetera, all the way up to plus five. So you could have really, really fancy runes that are worth a whole bunch or just your basic ones that are just like 1d6 fire damage. It's worth a plus one. Okay, and then to be clear for folks, so we talked about the fundamental weapons up front. You're saying we're going to get rid of striking. What does it mean? It means we're not getting extra dice. Doesn't make me sad personally, tremendously. What we would still do is from the fundamental runes, we take weapon potency, which feels a lot like our, our plus one, plus two, two, plus three to hit, you know, th- that part of what we're used to but without the plus one on the actual attack damage. And we could even, because it's 5e, we could let people have that in lieu of having their extra dice. I'm sure that'll make them very happy. (laughs) Sarcasm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I was trying to figure out how to get, so property rune returning, you have to etch it onto a thrown weapon. I was trying to figure out how to get returning on a bow. (laughs) So you just (laughs) throw the bow? Yeah, exactly. Like (laughs) one arrow, two arrows. (laughs) And then huh, my bow's <laughs> back. So now I need to find, figure out. Or maybe etch it onto an arrow and then the arrow returns to you. I like that. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you only have one arrow in your quiver? <laughs> only takes one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. That's a better idea. Like that. Be a discons- that, that would be a disconcerting thing to see, though. An arrow enters a guy and then unenters him. He's like, oh. God, why? <laughs> <laughs> uh, there, was, uh, there was some comedian who had a joke about that. It's like, you know, being stabbed is so much worse than being shot. It's like, oh, the knife's coming back. Oh, think it's it's leaving. Thank God. Oh, no, it's coming back again. Uh, so right now it's an elf of an archer. But but in, in my mind, still, we have the returning on the bow as well. So like, as the arrow disappears, like, what's he doing? Oh, God, the whole bow, my face. <laughs> He's shooting me again. No, no. Like that's, yeah. So anyway, I I, like that property rune. I just want there to be decent throwable weapons available early in the game without being an artificer. Just in the deck of many things product, we just got a 
throwable returning weapon that isn't very rare or higher, and it's a shield. That's not a weapon. It doesn't benefit from any of the things that benefit from a thrown weapon. It does let you make a ranged attack and it comes back, but it, it's not a thrown weapon, so it doesn't qualify for a bunch of things. It's a pain. It's like Dark Souls, you dual wield him. Yeah. <laughs> I have I have a different pitch. I just found a rune okay. called Impossible. Go on. It's an impossible rune. Was it grown in a lab to simulate real meat? It It is a level 20 rune. Uh, this rune makes weapon capable of impossible offense and defense. Etched, the etched weapon is immune to dispel magic and similar effects that could counteract its magic. If it's a ranged weapon or thrown weapon, its range increment is doubled. As two action command, you can activate it only once per hour, but the effect is you and the weapon flash to a perfect attacking position, then return to where you started. Make a strike with the etched weapon against one creature you can see, even if the target is beyond the weapon's reach or range. <laughs> On the strike, ignore any circumstance penalty, status penalty, and range increment penalty. <laughs> okay, so it's just line of sight range attack. Uh, yeah there's basically you're just here. you're just like you're you're blinking to a guy whacking him in the face and then blinking back and he goes <laughs> what the heck was that what just happened <laughs> once per hour <laughs> all right that's all. worth it it's pretty dope okay okay it's pretty dope okay runes everyone mm-hmm. runes are cool pf2 is cool yeah. if you're playing 5e runes are still pretty cool if we think we should we think yeah. you could use them <laughs> i mean also, just looking at the runes for Pathfinder 2 and your DM 5th edition, your, your DMing 5th edition, it can give you some really cool ideas for cool magic weapons that your players aren't familiar with, like we just did now. Like we just made the Unholy Avenger or something that has some cool effects that your players will appreciate and aren't going to be familiar with. Even just mining it for ideas for magic weapons that you want to put in your game, even if you don't actually like full one-to-one pull the system, can be very cool. Yeah. Real quick, I want us to look ahead to one D&D because we, we've gotten a couple of hints about what magic items are going to look like. Uh, we have been told that the 2024 Dungeon Master's Guide will include magic item prices for magic items like you will be able to say thank you god yeah jesus christ do you mean do you mean (laughs) jeremy crawford long enough (laughs) uh jeremy crawford our lord and savior oh my god you don't understand (laughs) that has been my hugest my biggest gripe with fifth edition magic items is when my players are like how much does this item cost i'm just like I don't freaking there's know. No okay, because there's there's nothing. There are suggestions. There's not even suggestions in the book. Mm. I have to look outside the there's, book for suggestions. There's suggestions in the this book. Should they're have bad. Been, yeah, they're bad. <laughs> uh, the, this should have been in there day one. Like, oh my god, I've been asking for this for so long. So I, it goes back to like the philosophy in Five E of where they wanted magic items to feel rare and magical and unusual and not just something you'd buy off a shelf. The guidance we got in the dmg is like an item of this rarity can be could be purchased for this value to this value and the ranges are stupidly large if i remember correctly an uncommon item is like it could be 500 gold pieces it could be 10,000 gold pieces good luck and that's all well and good like i get not wanting to get have players buy stuff off the shelf but what they fail to account for is one at least give me prices for health potions you idiots yeah because that's the thing that people always buy and there's nothing <laughs> and when we're talking about starting at at higher levels which i do quite frequently because starting at level one is awful in fifth edition usually i give people gold to buy some magic items for themselves and people are like how much does this magic item cost I don't know. <laughs> Figure it out. Yeah. I do have good news. There is, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. Teller wrote an awesome article a while back, which is basically, here's a table. What level are you starting at? Here's how many consumable magic items you get at particular levels. Here's how many non-consumable magic items you get at particular levels. Like, he- here's your junk. Go pick your junk. Let's party. <laughs> we also have an article on handling purchasing magic items, which goes into like, here's how to here's how to actually present magic items to your players. Here's how to determine a reasonable price for magic items based on rarity, all those things. It's still not fantastic because it's based on, like, it, it is like, how do we take the DMG rules and actually apply them to something useful? So it's limited. But 
my my point with the magic item prices coming in one D and D is we'll now be able to look at magic item prices and say like, okay, this property on this thing has this GP value. And then we can take that and use that to assemble custom magic items and actually say like, okay, it's, it's worth roughly this amount of gold. It's roughly this effective compared to other magic items. And I think that's going to allow for a lot of creativity. Yeah, I agree. We have a question of the week this week. This week, our question of the week comes to us from at the Gorosaur. If you want to test a new tone with a regular group, comedy to serious, good to evil, etc., is it best to just start a new group? Or what's the easiest way to sneak tonal shifts into the game? The Gorosaur. I, I want to lead off immediately. Nothing, nothing you will ever do. Nothing you'll ever do in your life. All the things you ever do in your life, you can count them. None of them will be as hard as finding a second regular D&D group <laughs> or tabletop oh, group God. in general. So oh. I'm, I'm going to eliminate the premise. Uh, yeah, I the can, answer can't be go get a new I group. I can speak to that. Yeah, agreed. I would say, first off, talk to your group. If, if, if we're talking about like you feel like the campaign is getting too, too intense and you want to back it off a little bit, that's easy enough to do. You don't need to have discussion. But if you want to radically shift the entire tone and focus of the campaign, that's something you need to talk to you, your players about. It's not, it's not something that you can just kind of sneak in there. Like if we're playing a heroic fantasy and you want to shift it to, hey, you guys are working for the evil guy now. That's not going to go over well if you surprise it on your players. So maybe have a conversation with your players. I will say any good game, I think, has moments of levity and has moments of drama. I try to inject just as much ridiculousness and hilarity into my games as I do poignancy and drama. What's great about Planescape, the game that I'm running, is that I can able, I'm able to shift between those tones relatively easy without it feeling disjointed. Um, <laughs> My one caution, and it's hard to thread the line, especially when you're talking about comedy versus versus drama, of finding that balance. Because you want to give players enough of the comedy hilariousness so that they don't feel overwhelmed with all the darkness you're throwing at them. But at the same time, you don't want to undercut the seriousness too much to the point where your players can't take anything seriously. It's a balancing act, and I don't think there's an easy way to do it. I think it's just something you learn as a DM. But yeah, if you want to shift the tone radically, have a discussion with your players. Maybe you're not having fun. Maybe you want to do an evil campaign. Evil campaigns are fun. Just have that discussion with your players. I, I agree 100%. Like It should start with a discussion of, of what you're into. Two of the tools that I'll toss out. One is doing a short arc within your campaign with the characters that you're already playing. And so telling the group, like you get through your session, let's say it's especially heavy session, you put a bow on some things. And so it could be nice to do something lighter. Saying that flat out, like, hey, I have an idea for what I want to do next. Short arc, I'd like to do something a little bit lighter, like have that conversation, get the feedback. If the table's like, no, we love what we're doing and we want to do this right now. We want to keep going, you know, either stand your ground and say, okay, but we're going to, you know, team, let's do this and see if you can get some buy-in. If you can't, then maybe it's not for the table. I bet you're probably going to get some yeses in that scenario and then you could run an arc so let's say somebody has a character from the background and they show up and say it's like the village needs help and why does the village need help because all the chickens some somebody keeps casting <laughs> levitate in the chickens and you have to find it i don't know that you, you do what you want similarly like if you're trying to go good to evil i agree with ash i would still say we could use this tool so imagine saying like hey i want to explore a little bit what's happening in the bbg's tower or what's happening in you know in in their world so let's roll some characters of an appropriate level and let's be some goons over there and let's like literally go explore what's happening there. A little bit dangerous. You're going to have to work this carefully. They can't like find the book that has the answer so the players get the knowledge. Getting buy-in and then setting a short window of time where what you say is we're going to go explore being more serious, being less serious, being more evil than we already are. Yeah, I love that idea because... You know, a lot of times in media, we we switch over to like the bad guys lair 
an example for me is like the Castlevania series where they focus like half and half between the heroes and the villains and their whole shenanigans. And it allows us to empathize with the villains a little bit more. So if you want to go for like that sympathetic villain protagonist stuff, that is a way you could do it. I think it would be a lot of fun for your players. I do want to say that Van Richten's guide has a good system for this. It encourages you to do what are called horror survivor scenarios. Like say you're doing a monster of the week game and you want to set up the threatening, the, how threatening the monster is. You have your players play commoners and they are trying to run away from whatever is like hunting them. And it becomes like a thing where you, you see how long you can survive before the monster gets you. It really instills fear into your players. Like, Oh, this thing is really scary and brutal and it killed us like it was nothing now let's get some revenge on it as our actual characters so that can be kind of fun like a day in the limelight sort of thing yeah def- definitely and like getting that view and letting them feel helpless could be a lot of fun taking that idea of like being goons in the bad guys army like imagine doing that in the culmination of the one shot is that the characters that they're playing like let's say they decide to set some of the villagers free or something like this, like they have a change of heart or they, they want to do something. Maybe they're truly evil and they try to steal something important to the BBG because they're selfish monsters, whatever the case may be. I guarantee you when the actual party breaks into that layer, one of them is going to be like, we, we have to go save Susie the Hobgoblin. <laughs> but you're yeah. having that rich, you're yes. having death. I think it'd be a lot of fun. I think you guys hit it exactly. Like, yeah, talk to the group ahead of time consider doing like a short arc where the tone is different if if that's all you need jumping back and forth between different perspectives to do different tones that's an awesome idea i love that guys yeah all good advice all around oh hail the leisure illuminati i'm Reynold james you'll find me at amateurjack.com and on twitter and instagram at jack amateur i'm tyler Campstra. you'll find me on rpgbot.net facebook and twitter rpg bot dot net no i'm not going to call it x most other socials RPG bot. Uh, I'm Ash Eli. You can find me uh, ruining things on Twitter at Graven Ashes or <laughs> yeah, ruin them or on YouTube at Ash Raven Media. If you want me to run a game for you, just find me at startplaying.games. Link in the description. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcast and rate us on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. It's a quick, free way to support the podcast and helps us to reach new listeners. You'll find links in the show notes. You'll find affiliate links for source books and other materials linked in the show notes, as well as on RPGBot.net. Following these links helps us to make the show happen every week. If your question should be the question of the week next week, please email podcast at rpgbot.net or message us on Twitter at rpgbotdotnet. Please also consider supporting us on Patreon, where you'll find all kinds of great rewards. At any tier, you'll get early access to rpgbot.content and polls for future content. At our $3 tiers, you'll enjoy your choice of free access to rpgbot.net or add free podcast episodes and access to live stream podcasts or recordings. At our $5 tiers and above, you get all of that, <laughs> plus access to the rpgbot.discord. You'll find us at patreon.com slash rpgbot. I can't get you when you're when you're not looking anymore, so I had to start Mouth, trying audio. I'm, so, sounds, I'm sorry, Dan, sir? but it works, and it's funny. We are professional. Mouth sounds. That's pretty good. <laughs> it's because I love you, Randall.